Hello, my father. Uh, hello, my son. <laughs> How oh, are you doing? Nice to be doing good. Nice to be podcasting again. Okay. Uh, have we started uh, recording it? We, we talked we about started, a couple of things before. It's, it's already recording, so we can maybe okay. do the podcast first, and then we can call back later to discuss other things if you want. Okay. That's fine. Okay. So... Um, so we're reading uh, Ron Chernow's Titan, the biography of John D. Rockefeller, which I bought you as a gift and you were uh, deeply enamored of. Yeah, I, I learned a lot of things uh, and about Nelson D. Rock, I mean, about John D. Rockefeller. And uh, I uh, learned that you cannot judge people uh, without knowing too much about them. <laughs> My my preconceived notions about him were all changed by the time I finished reading the book. And uh, thank you for giving me that book. You know, when I first looked at it, it was 700 pages. I didn't think I'd finish it, but it was fascinating to read. So I and to be fair, it. you haven't finished it, right? Yeah, <laughs> uh, no, I don't think I finished it. I finished, I come up to a certain stage. I was surprised because you know. Uh, he has come to the retirement age, and I don't know what he's going to talk about now, but apparently there's a lot more things to talk about. <laughs> right, because he and retires course, from his business, but yeah. then he starts his philanthropy full-time, right? And not only that, you know, the author is a very good writer, and he uh, digresses to other actors in the story. Uh, mm. His, his uh, brother is son, uh, his wife, and so, and uh, about this Ida Turbel, who was basically his antagonist. Mm, uh, yeah. Yeah. So, well, he, he uh, all the pe actors that come in and go that affect his life, some of them are good guys, some of them are bad guys, uh, villains. It's interesting. He made it very interesting. And of course, in all our life, you know, our life is uh, not just our life. It involves all the other people that come in and out of our story, right? So they influence yeah. us, uh, and uh, they uh, also uh, uh, challenge us. Uh, they sometimes uh, uh, determine what we do, right? Because if you say somebody is there and you're going to help them, you're involved in their life. And so that's how it is. It's a very interesting book, yeah. So Yeah, I'm and so I guess... Yeah, so last episode, we talked about the intro, just kind of the yeah. the, the backstory of how we read it. So for this week, I was going to do a chapter a week, but then I got carried away, so I actually read two chapters, so we're not going to follow a strict ordering. Okay. Um, but so I've read chapter one, which was about his, his history of his family, and then yeah. chapter two, which is mostly about his father. Right. Big Bill. Yeah. See, again, you know, when somebody says Rockefeller, that means world's richest man. Because I, read, I think I told you in one of the other novels, one of the characters says, it's totally unrelated to this, the guy says, oh, if I had that, I'll be as rich as Rockefeller. <laughs> so he's like the gold standard <laughs> of the rich people, you know, of the rich person. I mean, well, well, I really, yeah, I mean, he, he is literally the template of the yeah. self-made millionaire. Self-made millionaire. And yeah, go ahead. And the, the the last episode I titled "Founding's Father" because okay. he is like 
the archetype of a founder, right? The, of right, what it means right. to be a startup. Yeah. And what's <laughs> fascinating is, um, you know, I, I knew his father was a colorful character, but right. I didn't realize that he was so colorful that one of his father's contemporaries wrote an mm. entire story ab about him mm. fictionalized because he was so notorious and so yeah. feared uh, and so admired in, in, in this weird combination um, that people were curious about him, but they were afraid to tell the truth. <laughs> and so he had yeah. to write this story wrapped in a layer of fiction. Whoa. And, you know, and, and, you know, the, the, the author of the Titan, you know, tries to tease out what is fanciful, what is probable, what is true, what is, <laughs> a, what is a matter of public record. Uh -huh. And, you know, the, um, and, and what's fascinating about Rockefeller is that he, he, he almost created, a, I mean, in the past, if you had biographies of great men who shaped history, they were pretty much political or military, right? Mm -hmm. Is that if you have these great titans who are changing the world, it's Julius Caesar or uh, George Washington, um, yeah. you know, like the, um, or maybe a pope, right? Yeah. You know, th that, uh, and so well, sure, you know, most stories are about people who, inherit, who are already in a position of power that existed. Mm. Right, you think about how, you know, um, you know, a pope, like, you know, the, you know, Constantine became emperor, but there were emperors before Constantine, right? right? You know, the role existed. Uh, right. Caesar is interesting, because Caesar, you know, didn't really, I mean, there were, there were, there were a few other empires around before then, sort of Egypt and, yeah, uh, maybe even Persia, but like Caesar became a template, right? Where like all the you know czars and kaisers named yeah. themselves yeah. after Caesar because he was like a thing. Um, yeah, because you know, I mean, uh, that was the uh, Caesar. Uh, Rome had the Senate and stuff, so uh, this was so he basically took over as an emperor, right? Yeah. Right, yeah, and then Augustus, you know, formalized it. But you know, the the the, but you know, so you know, it's interesting. You think about it is the um, another odd bit of history is that you know people argue about who the first king was, but the first emperor is I think the Shai Sargon or whatever is, hmm. is like well known, and there's a case to be made that emperors actually preceded kings uh, it, hmm. as we know them. Because the idea that you're conquering a people is yeah. how you establish yeah. this sort of hereditary rulership thing. And right. that concept of you know, conquering someone to build an empire seems to be more or less consistent with like the emergence of the first cities and the first uh, you know, concept of civilization and, you know, Cain and all this stuff. Like, that all seems to be around the same time frame historically. And, like, before that, you know, whether you take a biblical or a archaeological perspective on things, you know, humans lived in sort of a state of innocence. 
you know, you didn't have civilization and all these towering, you know, complexes of culture and caste and uh, things like that. But regardless, it was like a, a massive innovation over, you know, the state of nature. Because before, you know, the you know, human beings lived sort of harmoniously with nature, right? They weren't living in cities. They weren't planting fields and building walls and things like that. Mm. Yeah. Right. It was, you know, even in the garden, right? And so what's fascinating is that, like, from then on, like, conquest and, um, you know, politics was the yeah. dominant way that, you know, power was accrued. And, you know, of course, you know, the Mountains and the British East, East India Company and all these things happened, but those were all sort of underneath the political uh banner and this idea of rockefeller um essentially creating this idea of the multi-regional corporation mm. you know and becoming you know more or less from nothing building this empire that was stronger than government and larger than government yeah he was only is, a, i don't know how far you've come in his early life no, I'm not, he's like 13. He's just finishing school. Oh, where okay, yeah, so we'll talk about it more, I think. You know, right, yeah. That. But, but yeah, but spoiler alert, he becomes the richest man in the world, starting from yeah. basically nothing, right? <laughs> right, yeah, and, exactly. And what's fascinating is that in, the, in order to do this sort of like thing, you have to be, you probably have to be this insane contradiction of virtues and vices. Uh-huh. Right? And that's what you really get from the first two chapters about his, you know, pious, God-fearing, respectable mother and his yeah. wild, flamboyant um, wild bill. father. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, big Bill, Wild Bill, and, yeah. you know, the, 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 the fact that, you know, he was his mother had to live in a share a house with his mistress and you know his half siblings yeah. and like all <laughs> yeah. this insane stuff yeah um and, and yet the big bill was you know scrupulous in certain virtues and utterly ruthless and unscrupulous in others yeah and you know this um it created this deep uh the, the author uh, really goes into this, this deep division in Rockefeller psyche, which oddly enough, you know, we were planning to go here when we started the story, but like he says, the driving force in his life is this shame slash admiration for his father. <laughs> yeah. So a couple of things. You hold your thoughts. One of the interesting things I don't know whether you mentioned where you are now. Uh, his father is actually buried in Freeport, Illinois, which is a stone oh. throw from our house. Yeah. Yeah, uh, we, we'll, we'll come to that later on. Probably the other thing is um, your uh, nephew um, Nicholas and Sophia have given us a gift for Christmas to write about different topics of our lives. Remember, and then yeah, uh, they're going to make it a book. But the the last one of the questions is who are your heroes, and who thinks you are a hero. I started thinking mm -hmm. about different things. And the interesting thing is, in Rockefeller's case, you know, his father, you know, because of who he was, either 
Rockefeller could follow in his footsteps and do all the things his father did, imitate him in some ways, or go the exact opposite, avoid mm-hmm. all the things his father did and not make the uh, make his situation completely opposite of what his father was. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think uh, mostly, mostly he went third on the side of going away from his father. And, well, so uh, it's interesting. I mean, but yeah. so, so that's an interesting perspective on because it depends on what you mean by this raises a really hard question. Like, who was his father, and who did Rockefeller? Like, because it, it seems like he actually, in two ways, I think, profoundly emulated his father, right? Because his father was an adventurous entrepreneur, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Who you know worked insanely hard and took incredible risks to amass, you know, unbelievable wealth compared to his peers, right? So Rockefeller totally did that. Yeah. Right? Right. And secondly, yeah. his father was a deeply divided man who yeah. had this bifurcated personality. So two of his most defining traits were exact mirrors of his father. Yet at the same time, he also lived his life with sort of an icy religiosity yeah. and sort of... Which was not uh, present in his father, yeah. Was not present in right. His father, his, yeah. his father had a, had a had, certainly seemed to have had some sort of code of honor, like he apparently paid his debts and he didn't drink uh, to perhaps distinguish himself from his father, who was kind of a notorious yeah. wastrel, right? Yeah. Um, and so in a third way, he emulates his father by rebelling against certain aspects of his father's personality while blindly adopting others. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Later on, it comes out. Right? Uh, come on, I'm, I'm sure. Like we talked about it, you know, he. We all use certain aspects of our heroes, right? We, we take certain uh, characters of our heroes, but uh, we don't avoid certain things from our heroes also. So yeah. yeah. Other thing is the like you hit right on the nail. The religious part of it. His father had. Uh, did not have uh, that kind of a belief, whereas Rockefeller basically, the later years felt that God has given him his, his money to be used for God. And well, I think he, I, I would tell you I think I think that's a pretty consistent trend. I mean, I, yeah, maybe I don't know if he. Uh, I mean, certainly the way he tells the story, that was mm-hmm. always his desire was to use money for yeah. God. It was never about lust or yeah. greed yeah. or anything like that. And you know, and this is one of the the interesting things, one of these fascinating contradictions about him, is mm. that I mean, it's it's like Warren Buffett, like Warren Buffett is not what I would consider a greedy man, but he mm. was always obsessed and fascinated with money, just mm. because of like as a way of keeping score or as an intellectual challenge or something, mm. right? He didn't. Uh, you know, like there are people who are like enamored of wealth because of the things it can buy. Right. 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 You know, they want the fancy car, the status symbols, or the power it gives them over people. But people like Warren Buffett seem like they're just fascinated by money the way I'm mm-hmm. fascinated by science. Right. Right. And yeah. Rockefeller has, I think, well, I think, well, like, like most things about Rockefeller, there's, there's like multiple levels going on here, right? Yeah, right. Because you think about like the incredible poverty they talk about his family, especially his mother would endure when his father was away. 
Right. Right. And then his father would miraculously show up and shower money on them and all their money problems would go away, all the shame right. of the death and, and yeah. like that. And so he has this really weird bifurcated sense of, well, you know, yeah. we, we have, you know, money is this rare thing and we have to be poor and we have to be careful with like, oh my God, money's amazing. It solves all our problems. And when you get it, like, it's so wonderful. And, you know, um, one of the things the author talks about I find really fascinating is how Rockefeller had to cultivate at a very early age this uh, disdain for public opinion or this, like, there's certain things we just don't talk about. So, like, mm. all the gossip in the village about his father uh, right. and stuff like that and this um, – um, the sense of the, I guess the split personality. There's certain things we know are true, but we never admit to ourselves that they are true. Right, right. And what's fascinating mm -hmm. is that this gets to this idea of self-differentiation, which I don't know if we've mm -hmm. talked about this concept before, mm -hmm. but I find this one of the most powerful ideas that mm -hmm. I've run across. Uh, and it, it came from a, an essay by this... Uh, guy Alistair who's a public theologian and mm. he was doing a review of a book about Lyndon Johnson okay uh, the the master of the Senate became president mm. after Kennedy died and right. he says one of the reasons that Lyndon Johnson was such a consummate politician in terms of like his ability to get legislation done mm. uh, you know like the great society reforms and, and what and civil rights stuff was right. because he under uh, is that you have to have two things in tension. One, you have to have a clear sense of what your goals are and your ideals. But secondly, you have to have a deep practical empathy for the people that you need to persuade. And uh, the, the point of the, 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 the let me let, let me just define that. that, okay? Yeah. yeah okay, so what, what what he means is that what what happens is. That there's two things that are easy. One is to be in your own head and have a clear sense of what you want. Right. The other is to be emotionally enmeshed with other people and have a deep grasp of what they want. And either one of those two poles is relatively easy, right? To just be part of the crowd and feel what they feel and identify with them and embrace their pain, that's fairly easy. You know, uh, and, and to be kind of the, the hermit or the, the person on the outside who's, you know, focused on themselves. We talked about this of disconnecting from self versus disconnecting from others, I think, is, okay. is you know, is, is that both of those are sort of stable. But inside there's this incredible, if you have to have both at the same time, there's a deep tension because it's really hard to be fully empathic and fully yourself at the same time. Yeah, because sometimes in conflict. Because well, yeah, because their position is different from yours, and you want them to right, come to your, like in, in Johnson's case, you want them to move from their position to yours. You cannot fully empathize with them because then you won't want change. So, right. right? If you, How do you explain yeah, that? I call, this, I call this the seer's paradox. I have a character I wrote in one of my stories called The Seer who sees every side of an argument and okay. the justice and pain behind both perspectives. 
and is therefore frozen in this place of, of not being able to act. All they can do mm. is see. Because right. you realize that anything you do to make a decision is to cut off somebody's point of view and, and, and right. validate it. Right. And, and so what this author talks about, this ability to self-differentiate is to be able to hold those two intentions. Um, like I read a science fiction story where the rulers of this world have, uh, um, they have this genetic virus that keeps them from feeling emotion, mm. but they have this drug they can take to reverse that so that they feel emotions. And the way they do it is they say, what I do is I make decisions mm. without the drug so I'm clear-headed and rational, but then I know I'm going to take the drug afterwards so that I will feel the emotional consequences of my decision <laughs> That's to keep myself yeah. honest. And, okay. and then and then feel this problem and then use that to like raise all these issues and then stop the drug, you know, decompress from all of that and then make a decision. And mm. it's a, it's actually a fascinating metaphor for what I think is the because uh, there's two things that are important. One is that you have to know what people care about as a practical matter so you can you know influence them and make decisions and whatever. But mm. also, you know. Um, and this is, you know, the thing that I think, uh, Rockefeller's critics justly complain about mm. is that, you know, Rockefeller with some accuracy believed he was doing a good thing for people in the world, right? Not only good Providing thing, the cheap, right, <laughs> the right, right. Yeah, yeah, the right thing, right? Like, I mean, yeah. he was like, he like, you know, he, he saved the whales by moving people off of whale blubber onto <laughs> kerosene, right? He yeah, like yeah. made possible massive advances in education yeah. by letting mm. people actually have light. And, you know, yeah. he bound the world together with commerce and, yeah. and all these things. So there's extraordinary things he did, but it carried an enormous cost on so many others. Right. And he basically was able to sort of live with himself mm. because he had the ability to just not care about those costs. And, and that's what that was the 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 thing that enabled him to do what he did. Um, but he walled himself off from other people's pain. He just didn't, and he just sort of totally ignored that. And he, that was the skill he learned from having to cope with his father, his yeah. ability to just wall off. And like that is the, the the ability to do good is also the source of all the evil. This right. ability to disconnect from others and be yourself. Yeah, we talked and about the a, compartmentalization, right? Compartmentalization. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Go yeah. ahead. Yeah, and this idea of. Um, Sorry, I interrupted you. <laughs> no, 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 no. Sorry, it was going to be, but this, this, this and this. Um, uh, in 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 some ways, he was. Um, I guess the first you know, sort of fully modern man, or maybe the epitome of the modern man, right? Who basically <laughs> violated all of the cultural and uh, not all of them, but all he them. was very picky about mm. which ethical and cultural norms he would obey and yeah. ruthlessly pragmatic about mm. which ones he would just either consciously ignore or subconsciously eliminate from his consideration so yeah. he could pursue those things. 
which is the actually you know, of being a traditionalist. Yeah, yeah, still early. I think as we go through the book, we'll realize uh, we could talk about this whole whole thing, which ones he uh, uh, avoided and which ones he accepted and things like that. But yeah. this chapter, which uh, you probably read, I didn't know that at all, that he was that poor. I assume Rockefellers were yeah. always from the big, uh, rich family, and then he made money. Uh, I didn't realize he started out really poor. And the second thing is, his father basically left when he was like 13 in this chapter, I think, because uh, he will, basically, he became the man of the house, right? Is that in the first yeah. chapter? Boy, man, yeah, because it basically ends with his father uh, mm. being indicted but not charged under sort of right. bizarre circumstances. Um, right. And like both the, his, you know, Rockefeller's uh, you know, Big Bill's version of the story and his accuser version of the story are both equally flawed and suspect, <laughs> right? Mm. The charges mm. of the, him engaging in sexual assault or whatever, you know, yeah. could easily have been trumped up by his enemies. On the other mm. hand, he may have earned those enemies. And he could actually have done the deed enough to, yeah. which because it broke his relationship with his wife and his wife's father, mm. and so yeah, Rockefeller became he was a boy man, right? Very serious, yeah. very stern, and yeah. it was and and this sort of uh, facade of self control, mm. which you know the uh, inter, you know the, the the author likes to point out the places where this facade slips. You see the yeah. passion, both the the childlike joy and kindness, as well as the bitter, you know, vitriolic anger. Mm. You know, they're all beneath the surface. Mm. And so that's interesting. Both sort of his compassion and mm. his cruelty are kind of hidden behind this business-like exterior. Yeah, right. I mean, it's not just a one-dimensional like that, thing are, where he's yeah. like, yeah. But well, what's interesting is like you often think of like someone has a good exterior and a cruel interior or a gruff exterior and a kind heart. That's, that's the usual sort of stereotypes. But yeah. Rockefeller had a very pragmatic exterior with yeah. these violently, you know, contradictory emotions warring inside of him. Mm. And that yeah. was why and, he was so ruthlessly effective. Yeah. At the same time, with yeah. the heart, yeah. Yeah. So, no, no, yeah, no, I think, yeah. yeah, go ahead. No, no that's fine. You go ahead. I still want to say in this first two chapters, um, yeah. I know you, you probably know what happened in the end and stuff like that. Uh, one of the things that inter uh, interested me was you can take the boy out of the village, but you cannot take the village out of the boy. See, you know the famous, famous quotation your mom always makes, right? That I will not buy a shirt that is more than fifteen, twenty dollars, and where my children are buying, you know, <laughs> sixty dollars shirts, right? So yes. I always say that, you know, they are doctors' children, but I am a clerk's son, and it happens to Rockefeller, and uh, fortunately, uh, he married a woman with a similar set of values. With same religious values, and yeah. even his son uh, talks about it in a later chapter. That for a long time he was wearing hand-me-down. He was the only son. They had three daughters, right, Rockefeller. Mm. And he was wearing for a long time hand-me-down clothes from his sisters. Mm -hmm. Even though at that time he was rich, and he always, when he goes to the 
restaurant or something, you'll go look at the bill and make sure everything is right. The son or the father? Right the, huh? John D. Rothbard, the father. The son wrote about mm. his father. That how closely mm. he was uh, worried about his. Uh, we, we will talk about it later on also. He gives real okay. examples, but the thing was, he watched every penny. And yeah. he'll, uh, one of the times he was in, in call, I don't know whether he was in this chapter or not, that he's dating a girl. And after he the bill comes, he pays the bill, then he takes a notebook and writes down how much he paid for the dinner and the tips. He wrote it down. <laughs> that girl got in front of the girl. In front yeah. of the girl. <laughs> so so uh, he, he always uh, he, he always was uh, conscious about where he came from. I don't know if it's because he was afraid to lose it or what, but it was his become mm -hmm. his nature to write down everything, mm -hmm. to watch every penny that he, he made, and that type of thing, which was interesting to me. Anyway, yeah, uh, well, I, that, I, that, was actually, uh, that was actually something I wanted to ask you about. One. Like, you know, how does your, you know, have you, when you're reading through all this, did this make you reflect on, or have you previously reflected on how your upbringing and your father's status and wealth affected your own attitude towards money and achievement? Definitely. I mean, not the achievement part. But, uh, again, that's what I was thinking about when he was doing that. This guy is a millionaire. And he's watching every penny. He's dressed flamboyantly by yachts and all this other stuff. I am like that. I really hmm. don't want a huge mansion. I don't want uh, you know two or three uh, mansions, uh, summer houses. Although we do have two condos, four cars, <laughs> but but we don't really want to uh, show off our wealth in some way. Yeah. Uh, and uh, not because I'm afraid the money is going to take it away, but like you were mentioning about him um, and uh, money, for some reason that never appealed to me. I think I, I may have told you this. Uh, I had a, a mentor named Dr. Arbent. He was uh, from Pakistan. He married a girl from India. He was my attending physician. And in mm. Kankakee and stuff, he'll come over to Kankakee and I'll do the surgery and he'll help me. And at one, just when I was about to finish my residency, he told me, uh, Prabhakar, don't worry about money. You just do the right thing and do the right surgery and everything. Money will always come to you. Mm -hmm. And so I think I'm right in saying that in my professional life, I never pursued money. Money just came. Right. I was more yeah. interested in doing surgery or doing uh, new things and uh, pursuing those things and never worried about money. And even now, when I think I don't worry about money at this stage, God has blessed us and I'm not going yeah. to outlive my money, but it's only for my uh, descendants uh, the money is going to go. So I'm careful about that. So that was interesting mm -hmm. about him. So, yeah, definitely. That had something to do with it, but you know, I don't know whether I should say the mom's in the next room. In mom's case, it did affect her because uh, how her dad dealt with money uh, has some effect on how she looks at it, but you have to ask her that question. And, yeah, I mean, again, uh, yeah, yeah, I was thinking about that. Like, I'm pretty sure you, yeah, you, you mentioned that you never worried about money, but at some point you had to worry about whether your wife worried about money. <laughs> and be, yeah. I, 
I, I, I, I could probably say the same thing. <laughs> yeah. So it'll be interesting to find out how you and Larry view money. And, uh, you know, I mean, I think your view would be similar to mine, I think. Yeah, like I said, I think I do, right? Like I assume that, and and like I said, the the, the like if it's just myself, I'm fine. But yeah. if I have a wife, it's a challenge because you know her profile, her background has a different thing she obsesses yeah. over and things she doesn't worry about. Right. And being mindful of what I do and don't worry about. Uh, in fact, there's some live issues I'm <laughs> yeah. through this yeah. weekend around that. But mm. the other thing that's also challenging is like, what do I pass on to my son? Because right. my son is not growing up in an environment where money is actually tight. I mean, we've had moments, you know, when I you know, yeah. left Apple where we had to cut back on certain things. But, like, our lifestyle never materially changed. We never really had to go on to a strict austerity budget where we were we, – we never had to uh, make conscious hard decisions that shaped the children's consciousness. But right? There were just sort of things on the fringes right? that would happen. But that was you and Larry too, right? You and Larry too, Well, I think that, like, so I remember growing up in, like, the South Shore of of Lakeshore Drive in Chicago and living in small apartments and, you know, when we first moved to Rochelle. So, like, I remember when we moved into our house in Rochelle and we got the dog and we got the Italian, like, that was like, (laughs) okay, now we've made it. Right? There's a sense in which we have achieved this you know, American middle-class dream. American dream, yeah, right. And we're good. And I remember that it was not the case before then, Mm -hmm. right? And so I've always had this sense, you know, that, like, money is not something to worry about. Right. But it is something to be careful with, right? So I think that subconsciously I did internalize the sense that, like, um, you don't just buy things. Right. Right. right? Yeah. You think hard, you make wise. Whereas like my son, like if he has a little, there's this quote on the library wall I used to see that when I have a little money, I buy books. If there's anything left over, I buy food. Yeah. <laughs> right. And my son <laughs> yeah. is like, you know, you know, if he has money, he buys a musical instrument. <laughs> and if there's anything left over, you know, yeah. and like, and, you know, and so I would get this deep anxiety about like why is he not careful why is he not thinking about the future why is he just sort of assuming that if something breaks we'll replace it don't i need Mm. to condition him to be Mm. obsessive over these things and anxious and worried and careful and fretful and it's like maybe not like maybe you know as as much as a virtue that was in that season Mm. having this um you know, and both sides of it, right? Like, I think you and I have both been fairly privileged, and perhaps you more mm. so than me, because you've had a basically one career, right? Whereas I've had right. many. Uh, yeah. Is that like you? You did not have to be con. You, you were. It was certainly. One can argue it was sort of almost a, sort of a bubble, right? There was a period of time in the 70s and 80s mm. when the the doctor business was not terribly cost constrained, right? You had a private practice, which is almost right. unheard of now. Right? Yeah, right, and you don't have to right. worry that much about insurance reimbursements and which patients yeah. you took. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And you, you yeah. sort of kind of like newspapers were back then, right? They were yeah. profitable enough that they could afford to be generous, and they could have this wall between editorial and advertising. 
Yeah. But let me go back. Yeah. Let me go back to what you said about your children too. I mean, Larry's children mm. too. Even though they don't worry about money, and like you said, if he has money, he buys something. Uh, they are not extravagant in the sense, you know, they don't want the latest shoes and they don't want the, uh, you know, uh, most expensive things, uh, uh, things like that. This is something he is passionate about music and he gets things to, for that. But yeah. uh, this, and I think some of it is also, he also saves money. I think Anjali saves money and does things with that. Anjali like is, that. Is, is the exact opposite. She like never spends anything except mm. when she like, the only time she spent money is when she gets into a fight mm. with her mom, but who's mm. going to pay for something? Because yeah. mom, my, you know, my, my wife will want to like say, well, we're going to buy you some clothes. She goes, no, I'm going to buy these. <laughs> and Rowan has moments like that too, but they're much fewer. Like, yeah. but that, 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 the yeah. only thing is that is is that she like she obsesses over her right to buy necessities yeah. and pay for things. Uh, but you know, her, she has more only, ca- she, she has yeah. more cash in the bank than I do most months. But she yeah. just like yeah, no, she, she's probably the only grandchild. I think she sent us some money one time with dollar bill. She, she likes to give money away. She will give money to her <laughs> yeah. brother, uh, yeah. you know, yeah. uh, yeah. and and he would take a horrible advantage of this. He would like sell her. She would like sell him $20 for a dollar when she was young. <laughs> it was very bizarre yeah. on so many levels. Yeah. Um, yeah. They have a strange relationship. But like the point is that, yeah, but, but I think yeah. there's two things that are interesting. That, like, like, the, the the conditioning that I had, so, um, you know, it like it's really useful in a lot of ways, but it can also be harmful in others. Mm. And this is the, the the paradox thing about how I raise my son is like, which of my virtues that I cherish will actually have a dark side that will be problematic? Like, like the thing about you know about um, Rockefeller. Like, he was successful precisely because he kind of uh, um, was picky about which virtues he inherited. You know? Yeah. And if he had picked up too much of his mother's virtues, mm. he would have been a far less successful businessman. You know? And, you know, and, and this is the thing is that I don't know the world my son will inherit. Right. I mean, your yeah. great, your father can't you know can't imagine the life I live now. Right. Right. All the technology right. and the travel yeah. and the the systems and like you know this this podcast. Right. Yeah. The fact that we're having a conversation that's recorded that's going to be you know on yeah. the internet for you know like yeah. this, 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 you know this is a fundamental part of my relationship with you is these podcasts and yeah. the fact that we're doing yeah. it in this public forum in this personal you know this our recorded history and like I mean I mean when was the first time you even saw a tape recording or recorded music? I guess you had photographs mm-hmm. when you were growing up, didn't you? Right. Or you remember when right. we first there's no, okay. there's no way. Later on tape recorders came and uh, one of the things that we always regret now is we didn't do this kind of thing with our parents and our uncles and stuff because by the time I started questioning them, they had forgotten most of the stuff that happened yeah uh, and, and so things like that uh, mom did a tape recorded interview with her mom about her childhood mm. about her values 
and all those things. That's still available. We have it uh, in our computer. So oh, maybe we should put it on our podcast page. So we can... <laughs> yeah, that's because uh, one of them maybe we can look at it uh, when you do it with your mom. But anyway, uh, going back to Rockefeller, it is, you're right. It's interesting that he didn't inherit some of those bad qualities of his dad, such as, you know, uh, he was married to the Womanizing. same woman. Yeah. Yeah, womanizing. And also, uh, I think it will come out later on, he was basically uh, manipulating people, cheating people, and things like that, which I don't think Rockefeller did that. He did, uh, we'll Not at a personal he level. Right, he didn't. Yeah. I mean, he clearly manipulated markets. He clearly manipulated companies. Yeah, I, I don't think there's a much dispute yeah. about that. Yeah, it could be. Yeah, he could wasn't. Be, yeah. yeah, right. It, it wasn't a personal thing. Yeah. In the yeah, sense that he, you know, he, he wasn't a con man in that sense. Right. Right. But you yeah, know, and, and it did. Yeah, it, it was, well, yeah. I think that was the thing about Rockefeller is that, it, 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 and this is the interesting, this, this is an odd phrase. It didn't feel as petty as his father. Right. His father would manipulate people for sort of personal gain, personal prestige. Uh, yeah. yeah. You know, you know, there's you know these rumors that he actually like uh, was the mastermind behind a group of horse thieves. Yeah, uh, that he was never, yeah, that was never to. proven. Yeah, they said it was never. It was never proven, person, but it's yeah. certainly plausible, <laughs> right? Yeah, Given in the, the second chapter, how far do they go about his dad? What all has he? Has he yeah, you know, they, they talk about, about all these things, right? It was really this, this, I think it's probably the most. The, like the, this book was the, this fictional book that was written. He is the the, the, the character who's stand in for Big Bill is very much the mastermind of this group of horse thieves, okay, and so it's just considered kind of his, uh, medical. Things they talk about is becoming a doctor. That uh, no, actually, they don't. Talk, no, I don't think they talk about it in chapter two yet. I remember hearing about that, okay, but I haven't gotten to that. Talk about it later on. Yeah, later on. Yeah. Okay. Uh, that'll be an interesting one because every time I have a conversation with you about medicine, we discover interesting emotional things that we didn't think were there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's interesting. How far have they? You talked about he's bringing his uh, girlfriend to live with the same house with his wife. And has it gone any further than that? Well, I mean, there's two things, right? At the very beginning of their marriage, his mm-hmm. had a living mistress and they had children by, like, both of right. them within the first two years. And then right. at the end, it talks about that there was a – that his wife had someone living with them that he was accused of assaulting. You know, there's a series mm-hmm. of young pretty mates that lived in their house, their house. And, you know, the one indictment that kind of broke the relationship was uh, him assaulting one of them. I see. You know. No, there's still more to it about his dad coming oh, later Oh, goodness. On. Okay. Later on. But at uh, the yeah. time being, though, the main thing was an absent father. From the time yeah. of 13 or something like that. And not only did he took over the responsibilities of uh, managing the household, paying the bills and all that, but also, he had to go to work early in order to support the family. Has it come to that yet in this chapter? No, not where he's not where he's, No, we haven't come to that yet. He's still going to school, but mm. and working during the summer. But he, he does talk about how he discovered that when he worked when he worked for someone, he made like thirty-seven cents a day, 
Right. So when he loaned somebody money, he made like three dollars and fifty for a year doing nothing. Uh, and he's it, hmm. and that was when he made sort of a vow, like I will make money my slave rather than being a slave to money. Right. Right. Yeah. Okay. You know, and I think that's yeah. an interesting phrase. And I think, mm-hmm. I think that he might come up like, once did he succeed in not being a slave to money, or did mm-hmm. he exchange sort of the uh, brutal but honest slavery of working for a living with the subtle but you know maybe more cruel slavery of uh, living you know of organizing his life around money. I wouldn't say money. I wouldn't say money itself. More business. Developing and that's business. an interesting thing. Yeah, yeah, and I that's an interesting thing. Yeah. Between just the money part of it, expanding the business part of it, uh, because money, he used, like you said, it was not a slave to money, he used money. Yeah, I think but as, what was as the sl- story goes, yeah. we'll know more. Yeah, and this is interesting. You remember when I went uh, when I left Caltech and went to work in management consulting, mm. and I said, you know, it was a great job at forty hours a week and a complete waste of my life at eighty hours a week, because mm. what I discovered mm. is here everyone there like really cared about money. Mm. Like we, you know, we we you know kept track of how much money we got from our clients. We helped our clients to make money for fun people would spend money for intellectual challenge they would invest money it was like all mm. about money like it wasn't so mm. much you know and like to a scientist money's like toilet paper right it's bad <laughs> if you don't have it but it's kind of weird to spend all your time thinking about it right, right. you have to tell oh, sorry hello yes I, i'm getting close to the house and i'm talking so loudly okay. that i am disturbing the family uh, tranquility uh, <laughs> okay yes uh, but yeah this idea that money is uh, a thing worthy of paying attention to is a sort of worship of money which business mm. is almost by definition built around and and that's maybe the interesting frame he wasn't exactly yeah. a slave uh, to money but, he, did, yeah. but he, he, it seems like he was at least a he, he he did seem to uh, hang out in the temple of money. Well, but if you get the philosophy saying that God is giving me all this money to be used for his kingdom, so I'll try to get more money in order I can serve God with my money. That's how he looked at it. I think as the story develops, we'll find out. But uh, what was his view of money? God is giving me, God is blessing me with this money. That's how I look at it. Well, uh, I think that's probably of, true. Right. But I mean, yeah. like I said, you and I, we feel like, well, money is a side effect of pursuing these gifts we have and using them in the service of other people. Right. right that's how right. you and I view money. Yeah. Whereas I think he saw his primary service to God <laughs> as the accumulation of money. And the good, the good he did in his business seems to be, um, like, for example, I think you and I mm. would both care a lot about what is the character of Christ represented in how we treat people in our business. Right. That does not seem to be a significant factor in Rockefeller's calculation. Right. Oh, yeah, yeah, right, yeah. <laughs> uh, again, right. you have to remember, he was in 1890s, so 
Uh, well, I'm not, I'm, I'm not judging him, right? I, I'm just no, trying no, to look at it. But a man of his time, yeah. Uh, that's probably but, but, and, and, but any time, really, like, you know, mm. this is the interesting thing, is that the tension between, the tension used to be between being sort of the, 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 the priest or the king, right? Um, mm. Like in, in, mm. in, you yeah. know, the, and the, and you know the you know even in, in the Catholic Church in Europe, medieval Europe, it really seemed like God was kind of a portrayed as a stern judging authority figure, and all mm. the sort of gentle compassionate virtues were ascribed to Mary. Oh, okay. Right, you know, so, uh, so, yeah. so that's why you know the, 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 the kind of thing you see in Spanish uh, and you know, Mexican Latin American Catholic Church. Mm. So, you know, you have the sort of Proud, domineering, demanding, democratic father, and this warm, loving, compassionate mother, you know, mm. both in their traditional family structures and in their uh, picture of God. Mm. And, you know, you know, and the, you know, and this is, you know, Ave, one of the kids did uh, Ave Maria at this concert yeah, Tuesday right, night. Right. You yeah. know, and it's all about, you know, the, the compassion of Mary is that. Yeah. And, 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 you know, the political system reflects that, um, mm. that you had both you know, this kind of harsh upper law, but this sort of gentle under mm. uh, grace. Um, and, you know, and this is, you know, this is a hard question. I mean, we'll end on this one, right? Is how do you be uh, a man in the 21st century, which is a challenge my son will have, <laughs> Yeah. you know, and you know, a lot of these, and like, you know, it, it's pretty, I think it's pretty fair to say, like, Rockefeller could not have achieved the success he had if he was not as ruthless as he was, right? If he had hesitated, if he had more scruples, if he was more delicate, more worried, he would have just stopped long before he rationalized an industry and, you know, served well, millions. Maybe because you said this is the last part, let's talk about that when he's doing those things whether he could have done it differently. Maybe that'd be one way of looking at it, uh, analyzing that. Yeah, yeah, because from yeah. what you said, that uh, he should have used Christian principles in business or something like that. But, uh, but, I wasn't saying, like, I didn't say he should have. I'm saying no, that was not a consideration he had. Could he have? Yeah, yeah. Just, and the yeah. answer is, like, in, in principle, of course, one can always imagine a world where he'd have, like, given his psychological makeup, given the realities of the business world he was in, given the lack of laws and structures that like, it, like it was conceivably that it was technically possible, but there's no way I can imagine it being psychologically possible, right? It's like yeah. he had to make those compromises with his own brain, just like we talked about Steve Jobs. Yeah. Like, you know, yes, one can imagine a different person who's more evolved and more highly mm. self-aware yeah. Uh, and has the surplus to worry about these things, doing a better mm. job. Yeah. But the thing is, is, when you're in the crucible, when you're in the midst of it, you know, you have to make mm. a decision now. With the, uh, I talk about this in life. It's like, you know, I wish I, w I, I, I was a better human being so I could handle mm. things in a more gracious and gentle mm. and patient manner. But unfortunately, I am the only person I have to work with. <laughs> And I have to, you know, make decisions and relate yeah. to people as I am, who I am, where I am. And I have to have the self-compassion 
to yeah. accept myself for that. And also the healthy self-hatred to realize mm-hmm. that, you know, there is a toxic cost to this, like, you know, you know uh, that, you know, I, I wander around having these loud conversations and annoying the neighbors and my family. Like, it's not a mm-hmm. big cost, but it is still a cost. And it's like, you know, if I was less ambitious and less trying to do all these hard things, I would also mm-hmm. be less annoying. <laughs> and, <Yeah. laughs> you know, and this is the, the trade-off yeah, we all cost. make. And but and, the whole thing, yeah. you know, and Rockefeller doing it and having his story and his historians and his biographies and his autobiographies, like mm. having that story is what gives us a chance to make better trade-offs, to do better, to transcend some of the yeah, right, cruel right. choices he made and the cruel things he did. And God willing, we can provide a legacy and a platform for our descendants to do better. One more thing I want to finish with is this. Some other things that he did were not illegal because uh, oh, yeah. the laws were not, like you mentioned, the laws were not there. Yeah. They produced laws later on to curb some of those things. Uh, in mm-hmm. the commerce, he had to, uh, things like that. So for, in his mind, he would have said, I'm doing what is legal, what is allowed, and it's not illegal. So I always, you know, one of my vices is feeding, right? I had to struggle with speeding when I was practicing. So finally, uh, uh, I think uh, the uh, cruise control came and helped me with that. So I put cruise control mm. so I won't speed up. But I would get, I would put it at 55 speed limit, I put 59, right? If uh-huh. it was 75 speed limit, I put 75. <laughs> so, yeah. So am I illegal <laughs> or I'm just accepting what's allowed? <laughs> Which is a dilemma I have to face even today. Yeah. But, and this pushes, so, that's yeah. what, so we'll talk about that when it comes to that. Yeah. And I think this question. You know of, what I'm what, saying? Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, it's interesting. And the question of what is moral, what is ethical, what is legal, like where the yeah. overlap, it's simple, but there's lots yeah. of places where it's not clear where they, yeah. it's the same thing. Things can be ethical without being legal and legal without being ethical. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, and, and does it even matter? Do those words actually hold meaning in times of rapid change? Yeah. Um, you know, and, uh, and this in this world where AI is changing everything and even words themselves are, are being called into question, it, right. it's going to be an interesting discussion. All right. Yeah. Uh, you want to okay, say anything okay. about that? Okay, can we uh, can we talk about other things for a minute after we finish? You, you yeah, I got back? another call to ten. Okay, yeah, I'll, let's hang up now and I'll call you back. Okay, love you, Dad. Okay, okay, love you, Ma. Bye, bye. Bye.